Remarkable accomplishments are happening every day on the Colorado Mesa University and Western Colorado Community College campuses, from faculty instruction and research to student projects and community involvement. See Me Now is a monthly segment on the KAFM Community Affairs Hour where we interview faculty, athletic coaches, and students to keep you up to date on all things CMU and WCCC. I'm Kelsey Coleman, along with my co-host David Ludlam. We have two guests on the show today, Western Colorado Community College Wildland Fire Management Program Director, Allison Robb, and Emeritus Professor of History, Stephen Schulte. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Good to be here. You know, it's amazing. I, I admire so much, Allison, what you do, more so than ever before, because when I woke up one morning and I found ash literally falling out of the sky, I thought about, I don't know, what, what the people in Pompeii felt like or something. It was really eerie being that far away and, ha- and seeing the effects of it, the smoke, the ash, but, but you train people to be right next to the fire, to be, to fighting it, um, flame to shield. And, and I don't think people know how that really works. You see the planes going back and forth and you see the images, but tell us about your program and how you take somebody, um, at, for, as a student and, and get them prepared to fight a fire. It's just, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. So we have a two-year program, an associate's degree, degree at the college to have students become basic firefighters. So this is their first step in the door for wildland fire positions. Most of the students right now, because there's a high demand for firefighters, are getting jobs either their first summer or their second summer, and then be able to go out and join the ranks of the firefighters. Our program teaches what we call the 100 and 200 level firefighter courses. Later in their careers, they'll be getting the 300 and 400 level, similar to college, 300 and 400 level courses where they get more advanced training. But if they take the basic guard school, which we call S-130, S-190, then they qualify to be red carded, which and they pass their physical and their arduous duty pack test, they are able to get out onto a fire once they're hired. Or we also have internships where we send our students out, usually their first summer, with one of the agencies, and they um, fight fire right next to the regular firefighters also, but more as an internship. So you, you, you get these students prepared to go out there and, and fight these wildfires. What about you? How, did you? how did you get into this business? How did you get into teaching this? Do you have experience yourself fighting fires? Or? Yes, I've pretty much done fire my whole career. I went to um, college at the University of Montana, which has a big firefighting um, entourage up there too, they, though they aren't teaching it at the college. The smoke jumper base is right there in Missoula, Montana, and that's what got me interested in fire. And then got my first position, got red carded, and it's either one of those love or hate it um, kind of uh, careers. So it's very arduous duty work, um, a lot of camar- camaraderie with other um, firefighters or your crew that you're on, and that just fit right in with my personality. I was born and raised in Montana, so I love the outdoors, so sleeping on the ground didn't ever bother me. And so you do have 33 years of federal service. You've been with the BLM, the U.S. Forest Service, and the National Park Service, and 28 years of wildland fire experience. Now, which that's a lot, that's a lot of years um, when you start adding them up like that. Can you kind of talk about how that experience transitions into teaching your students? You bet. So all through my career, they count on us as firefighters to help teach these classes 
to other firefighters. So you may be asked to assist in a, another 200-level class while you're employed, say, by the Forest Service or whatever it might be. So pretty much my whole career, I've been helping or teaching fire classes. I also have a medical background, so teaching EMS, um, being an EMT myself. And then one of my degrees is in um, teaching. I um, taught secondary biology for a little while. And that just kind of bled into thinking, hey, I should maybe help um, here in Grand Junction after I retired and bring along my knowledge to help other firefighters. Well, you are listening to CME Now on KFM Community Affairs, and we are speaking with WCCC Wildland Fire Management Program Director, Allison Robb, and Emeritus Professor of History, Steve Schulte. So Allison, you know, we're talking about training students to fight fires, but can you talk a little bit about why we fight fires? I mean, you read, read these reports where you know, a fire can cost 20 or 30 or 40 million dollars. And you know, why should we fight fires? Do we always want to fight them? Are there times when we let them burn? Can you talk to us about how, how that works? Yeah, majority of the time we try to suppress the fires. Obviously, there's areas that we, suppressing meaning put them out. So there are areas where we may allow a fire to burn. An example of that could be a wilderness area where we're not impacting homes or businesses oil and gas areas, we allow a fire to burn for a resource benefit. And that's for the good of the environment also, and the plants, animals. Fire is a very natural thing on our landscape. But again, when it comes down to where it's burning close to homes, or as you can see right now in California, we're evacuating small communities, that's not a very good role for fire to be burning structures. Well, maybe that's a good chance for us to bring Steve into the conversation because we're we, we're talking about you know why we fight fires and when it's appropriate but I imagine you know as, as a professor of history that the the relationship between human beings and fire has not always been the same I imagine whether you know, Native Americans or Europeans or um, you know pre-literate societies a long time ago from an anthological standpoint maybe they viewed fires differently how, how does that play into it? I mean, where you're at in time and, and what you, how you see fire. Yeah, when I, when I teach, taught, I guess I should say. Uh, I might you're still, teaching today. So. Yeah, <laughs> uh, environmental history of the United States. We always started with a, a section on Native Americans, and students always found it interesting how Native Americans used fire as a tool to shape their environment. We always think of Native Americans, there's a stereotype that probably came out of the 1960s that you might remember, uh, some of you might remember anyway, uh, of, of the Indian blending in with the environment and never affecting it. Well, they were very active shapers of the environment and fire was their primary tool. Uh, when Europeans arrived here, they were shocked at the park, and th these are words they used, but they would have spelled it P-A-R-K-E, park-like appearance of the New England landscape. Uh, there was no underbrush because they'd burned it so many times. And they did that for lots of reasons. One of the reasons was to encourage certain species like deer and moose. And this is back east? This is back east. On the plains, we get groups like the Pawnee and the Sioux Indians uh, who would burn early in the spring and burn off the prairie, and of course Europeans feared that and couldn't believe it. Why were they doing it? They were trying to warm up the soil 
to produce little green shoots of prairie grass to feed their horses who were likely starving in the early spring when they did the burn off. So they were, they used fire. Uh, of course, Europeans and Americans scratched their heads and, and feared it, uh, but for centuries. So you hear this term controlled burn, and most people think maybe the BLM, the yeah. land mansion invented that, but what you're saying is that sometimes they were, Americans really used Yes, there was a controlled burn, but sometimes it was out of control too. Okay. <laughs> and, and can you talk about how, I mean, I'm thinking back to, you know, the, these times where Native Americans are going across the land, starting these fires and letting all this happen, but how, how were they building these fires? How were they creating them, and how did they know how you know, how not to get out of control and how to do what they wanted to do with that. I don't think they had very good control of a lot of them. Uh, and, I, and I don't know how they directed it very frankly because I doubt if they, they had the tools to do that. I mean, even when we were fighting fires in the early 20th century in 1910, we just used axes and shovels. So they would have had primitive uh, axes and shovels, but they, they would do it. They would try to channel bison this way. Uh, they would take advantage of the wind conditions and they understood the directions of the winds at certain seasons and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think we, that's an important thing to note, you know, is a lot of the times these Native Americans or throughout history, people are kind of reading the environment, right? The same way we are today in the same way that the firefighters are, are monitoring that Pine Gold fire and what they're doing to kind of, you know, halt it from going further. Yeah, In, that is something Indians knew it would produce more of certain species and, and make oh. their grazing uh, more opportune and there would be more deer, there would be more bison, that kind of so thing. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife isn't the first to manage wildlife is what <laughs> you're saying. That's right. <laughs> so you talked about tools, uh, axes, and what was the other tool that was used? Well, shovels. Shovels. But, but we, now we see, Allison, these, these massive airplanes uh, during this particular fire flying in circles all day long. Um, tell us about those machines and, and what they do to aid people on the ground. And, and, and have you ever been in one or had an experience on those planes? They're amazing, amazing machines. They are amazing machines. And so obviously most folks know that those are loaded with water and retardant. And that retardant is dropped on the ground, usually at the fire's edge, which again slows down the speed of that fire when it hits that vegetation. Usually a firefighter hand crew or dozers, whatever it might be, are shortly behind that retardant, trying to build line as that um, plane has laid that uh, retardant down, so build fire line. They're pretty instrumental. Of course, they have limitations too. If it's too windy, they can't fly. Uh, too smoky, sometimes they can't fly. So again, it'll vary a lot on when you can actually use the aircraft. You are listening to See Me Now on KFM Community Affairs, and we are speaking with WCCC Wildland Fire Management Program Director Allison Robb and Emeritus Professor of History Steve Schulte. Well, continuing your, your explanation of these these large aircraft that help help fight fires, I've always wondered where do they get the water? Where do they fill up? How do they and they do it fast, obviously. Yeah, so there are tanker bases, and we're fortunate enough to have one here in Grand Junction out at the airport, so the aircraft would land. There's these big tanks of pre-mixed water and retardant, and then those are pumped immediately into the aircraft. Or, for example, helicopters also, you can set up a big tank for a bucket 
to then be lowered into that, fill that bucket, and then fly that retardant back out to the aircraft or out to the fire in the aircraft. That's amazing. And so thinking about that, it you know, I see these planes flying over Grand Junction going to the Pine Gulch, and I think it it looks like it would be very expensive, you know, and so we think about how fire is good for the land and how it can actually help clear it out, just like in the Native American times. What What is the extent of where, you know, you let a fire, you let a fire run its course and when we really should get out there and take a stand and get it out? So there's that fine balance of whether Mother Nature is driving that fire and we don't want to put firefighters in front of that dangerous fire front. We may be using retardant because obviously it's safer than sticking human beings out there at the front or edge of the fire or the landscape dictates it. On Pine Gulch, it's very steep country. So it'd be extremely hard for either a dozer line or a hand line, which is dug by 20 firefighters, to get out there and try to keep up with this fire. And again, if you look at the Pine Gulch fire, what we call progressive maps, the different days that it burned, it burned in all directions. So the wind pushed it in different directions. So it was harder to fight in that sense. It seemed like people were happy when it stopped going northeast, am I right? Correct, yeah. yes. West was a little safer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, Steve, you were talking about um, how Native American culture used fire as a tool and for various purposes, but I also think about, like, you know, you you think of how fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel or, or Robin Hood, and it, back in Europe, I mean, I, I think people were afraid of the forest, and and because when they went in there, sometimes they didn't come out and there were bad things in the forest that could get you. And so there, there was this deforestation and they were constantly burning their forests. And did they, did they bring any of that with them? Because you don't see that today. I mean, we, we're very much wanting to put fires out all the time. What happened there? Where we sort of stuck? They, they hated two things. And this is interesting. Uh, deep, dark forests had, had negative connotations that go all the way back to the Greeks. Oh. Yeah, certainly the Greeks and the Romans and uh, the English and Scandinavians, my ancestors. Uh, and then, of course, wild animals like wolves. And is that why you get this mythology about how Europeans did not like forests? Sure. Of that, that predators and things But like they that. were delighted when they saw the American forests because they didn't have as much tangled undergrowth. Why? They'd been burned regularly. For hundreds of years by Native Americans. Again, that green, magnificent park-like appearance. They loved the wood, too. Uh, one of the quotes I remember in a, in a book I used to assign is, uh, this is, this is a European talking, an Englishman, this is a great land for those who like big fires. They mean in their homes. They'd be warm because they were freezing because they had deforested much of England. Well, don't go anywhere. We are going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. You are listening to See Me Now on KFM Community Affairs, and we are speaking with Allison Robb and Stephen Schulte. Now, Steve, I want to direct this at you because we've been talking about you know the history of Native Americans and kind of working through time with, with fire. At what point did the fire service come, true, come to fruition, and, and why? Well, fires 
massive wildfires were certainly associated with Western expansion of the American people. Uh, the best example I can give you would be uh, railroad construction required timber for ties. So they were constantly cutting timber to get railroad ties. And of course, we had a network of railroads. Uh, well, you can't even, I, you know, hundreds of railroad lines by 1890, turn of the century across the country. Uh, the other thing is the cutting of, of forests, entire massive forests in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and northern Minnesota uh, to clear it for agriculture. So there was what, what is called uh, in, in the timber business slash everywhere, uh, half, you know, big branches that weren't quite large enough to take and, and make into boards, send down the river or however they wanted to transport it. And these things were subject, the slash was subject to sparks from, did you hear me snap my fingers? <laughs> Not very good. Uh, s sparks from, uh, from, from electrical fires would start uh, huge fi fires that would burn all the way across uh, the middle part of our country, so a, pla a place called Peshtigo, Wisconsin, in 1871, lost several hundred citizens uh, because of it just caught on fire because of all the, the timbering and the slash that was left behind. Uh, and people would climb into their root cellars and they suffocated. And I'm imagining, you know, the train going by, creating sparks and that exactly. flying out at the slash, what you call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it would just catch on fire. Well, you know, I, I grew up in the era of uh, Smokey the Bear, and you had these images that you know, were to train people to, to never start a fire, that fires are always bad. And, but yet, uh, on the other hand, now you're also sort of hearing this, this, this narrative that fires are an essential phenomenon that's important for ecological health and either of you I mean how do we find this balance now moving forward I mean we, we know where we've come from historically with fires we know how we fight them we've covered that ground but where, what do we do in the future we didn't repress the them until about 19 the first decade of the 20th century there was attempts to fight them but it was very weak okay. we don't have a forest service until 1905 and the first forest fighters were the were forest rangers but they weren't. They didn't have any particular special skills, other than sturdiness and bravery. You know, just to, to stare a fire in the face and and, to, and take it on. Uh, so they didn't really fight them uh, in an organized way. Uh, every year, millions of acres would burn across the American West and the Midwest, and that was just expected. But we're getting more and more people moving in. And there's a recognition that maybe we should start fighting them. And, of course, the, the turning point uh, is, is what, it was, what was called the Big Burn of 1910 in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, vast numbers of acres, millions of acres uh, went up. Uh, it started small in late July. This sounds kind of familiar. And it blew up uh, the third week in August uh, in 1910. And in 36 hours, just took 
cities, small towns. Wallace, Idaho was almost burned to the ground, for example. A couple Montana towns as well. Uh, it was after that, when, when human lives were not just threatened, but about 100 people died, that there's a recognition on the part of the Forest Service uh, that we have to start fighting these. So it was very good for the Forest Service. It wasn't real good for the forests in the long run if you fight every fire because you're going to have you're going to build more slash. And uh, what has happened the last 20 years with 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 climate change and drought, particularly here? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, you are listening to See Me Now on KFM Community Affairs, and we are speaking with Allison Robb and Stephen Schulte. Steve, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about how we got to this point and where, where we may be going in the future, this courage and bravery to fight fires. And Allison, that made me think about, about you a little bit in terms of, I, I wish I would have asked you earlier, why do you fight fires at a personal level? I mean, how do you muster that courage to go do that? I mean, it's not for everybody. It must, be, it must take a special personality type to have that courage and the wherewithal to, to go do that. Can you speak to that a little bit? It does, and we do have a lot of education and training on what's safe and what is not. So again, it's a team effort, and we not only have management teams, but you have, you know, say a crew, for an example, is a team of people, 20 people, a fire crew. And so again, folks are trained, and you have leaders who hopefully aren't going to put any of us as firefighters in precarious positions where we are going to be injured or killed um, on a wildland fire. So that kind of comes back to fighting fire with fire, where we may not be right at the fire's edge, or if the fire doesn't even allow that, if the flames are 20, 30 feet tall, we do indirect attack. So again, we are moving away from the fire a little ways, digging fire line or using dozers or using existing roads, and then back burning off of those roads, basically kind of fight fire with fire. And probably our Native Americans and other folks may have done similar things to that. There's probably no written history of it, but I would guess they too wanted to protect their cabins or whatever it might be when they see a fire coming towards them. Okay, so the images that we see, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a, there's a war room, so to speak, where you're looking at maps and you're lighting backfires, and there's a whole lot more than the, the fire lines that we see on television and, 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 and imagery. Much, much more to that. I mean, not only is there that planning phase that is done days in advance, there's fire behavior, there's predictions. We have the ability now to put up drones, see what the fire is doing. We have aircraft that can fly at night and give us images of what it's done overnight, even though we can't see it till the next day. So again, there, there is a lot going on in that. And Allison, this makes me think of a podcast I listened to um, this week, and I hope I don't go on this crazy tangent right now, but it was um, incarcerated, incarcerated women in California and how they go and they fight these fires, and it went into the story of how there's this really beautiful camaraderie camaraderie within the fire team and how those are your, you know, your brothers and sisters and they protect you and there's like this sense of family. Do you see a lot of students of yours going into um, wildland fire for that reason. Well, and maybe before you answer it, to, to add on to that, do you also try to teach that in your classes too, that camaraderie that Kelsey mentioned? Yes, we do. So we have leadership classes that try to reinforce that teamwork, watching each other's back, getting to know each other really well. 
And just naturally, when you spend 24 hours a day or the whole entire summer with the same group of people, they become your family and you do care about them. You do miss them also because a lot of these firefighters are only out there for six months of a year and then in the winter they go do other things. And it's really, really a neat family. I myself have made lots of great friends that you may only see them once every three years, but when you do see them, they're like a brother or a sister to you because you have spent that intense amount of time with them in another place. You are listening to CMU Now on KFM Community Affairs, and we are speaking with Allison Robb and Emeritus Professor of History, Steve Schulte. Allison, we are talking about uh, Kelsey's question around camaraderie and the team that you build and the emotional connection you might, those bonds that you forge. But have you ever uh, lost somebody from a team or do you know uh, anyone who's ever lost someone on the line and, and what is that like for the for the culture and how do you recover from that when you do when there is a loss of life fighting fires yes unfortunately I have lost um, friends um, past employees that I supervised so yeah it's very very hard the best thing I think we have in wildland fire is we have the firefighters foundation so it's a national organization that then helps people donate to it and anyone can donate to it. That organization then helps either the parents or the family or other firefighters if they're um, having you know stressful events because they've lost one of their brothers or sisters um, that day on the fire line. Okay, yeah, it must must not be an easy thing. Um, but I suppose that in in fighting fires, it's it probably comes with the territory, just given the un- unpredictable nature and and the extent to which fires are getting bigger as time goes on. So, I think, uh, Allison, we should give a shout-out to a, a few of your former students that are the hot shots on the Pine Gulch Fire, right? We have Tayton and Zach. Yeah, correct. They're currently, they were past students here at um, WCC and Grand Junction and CMU. They both graduated. They both have worked um, three or four two summers at least, on engines or other crews. Just this summer, they got on with the Tatanka Hotshot crew and are have been fighting fire throughout the United States and now have ended up, I believe they've been here about a week, on our Pine Gulch fire. So not only those two students, but we have many other students who have helped on either Grizzly Fire or other fires throughout the, the Western states. Does that make you pretty proud to know that that your students have gone on to do things like that's the pinnacle of firefighting isn't it to be a hot shot or to get into those crews yeah it can be there's also hella repel crews um, smoke jumping crews I mean all those other organizations I'm just proud of any of the students who can get out there and help out and decide to make a career in wildland fire we definitely need more firefighters and if you know one of our listeners right now is thinking oh this sounds like something I want to do I want to be a part of how can, how can they get this degree, and, and where do they go to learn more? Well, obviously, they can enroll in school and start off with their um, basically gen eds and their S-130, S-190, like I mentioned before. Hopefully, we can get them a job this summer and this next summer coming up, and they'll get their feet wet and get some experience and move on with a successful career in wildland fire. Well, Steve, I know we're kind of wrapping up our segment here, but I, I want to put you on the spot on something. Uh, I think listening to you talk about the history of fires, I feel like the fear that I felt when the valley here was consumed with soot and ash and, and smoke, it's important to know the history of fires and to, to be able to contextualize things. And 
So would you recommend any kind of reading or any books that stand out in your mind as a, as a, a professor of history that people could pick up that might help them understand our history as human beings with fire and what it means for our future? Yeah, not letting kind of fear take over, yeah. right? Because it fire went from something like this tool to, as we still use it as a tool, but it also, I think a lot of a fear base um, comes with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the book uh, by William Cronin, a uh, professor at the University of Wisconsin called Changes in the Land, which deals with European and Native American perceptions of the land, including timber and fire. Um, in terms of the West, uh, Arizona State University professor Steve, this is a good name, Pine, but P Y N E. Steve ain't bad. Steve, is, good. Steve <laughs> is a good one too, but uh, Steve Pine, P Y N E, has written many books on the role of fire and firefighting, changing agency culture. Uh, you know, when, when the National Park Service in the 70s shocked everyone by uh, letting fires burn. Uh, and I was in Yellowstone when that happened. It was very interesting. I worked for the Park Service then. Well, I'll, have, I'll have to check those out. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I wish we had more time. This is so interesting, and yeah. I feel like we're just getting started. But um, unfortunately, our time is coming to an end. Thank you both for coming on the show today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be here. This segment airs on the second Tuesday of each month on KFM Community Radio. You can also listen to a podcast of today's show on kfmradio.org. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, along with my co-host, David Ludlam, and we'll be back next month with another edition of CMU Now on the Community Affairs Hour.